Chapter Thirteen of Our Village, Volume One by Mary Russell Mitford. Read by Anne Fletcher, Hobart, two thousand and twenty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our Village, Volume One, Chapter Thirteen An Old Bachelor. There is no effect of the subtle operation of the association of ideas more universal and more curious than the manner in which the most trivial circumstances recall particular persons to our memory. Sometimes these glances of recollection are purely pleasurable. Thus I have a double liking for May Day, as being the birthday of a dear friend whose fair idea burst upon me with the first sunbeam of that glad morning and I can never hear certain airs of Mozart and Handel without seeming to catch an echo of that sweetest voice in which I first learnt to love them. Pretty often, however, the point of association is less elegant, and occasionally it's tolerably ludicrous. We happen today to have for dinner a couple of wild ducks, the first of the season. And as the master of the house, who is so little of an epicure that I am sure he would never, while he lived, out of its feathers know a wild duck from a tame, whilst he, with little affectation of science, was squeezing the lemon and mixing cayenne pepper with the gravy, two of us exclaimed in a breath, "'Poor Mr. Sidney!' I rejoined the squeezer of lemons, "'Poor Sidney!' I think he would have allowed that these ducks were done even to half a turn. And then he told the story more elaborately to a young visitor, to whom Mr. Sidney was unknown. How, after eating the best parts of a couple of wild ducks, which all the company pronounced to be the finest and best-dressed wild ducks ever brought to table, that judicious critic in the gastronomic art limited the too sweeping praise by gravely asserting that the birds were certainly excellent, and that the cookery would have been excellent also, had they not been roasted half a turn too much. Mr. Sidney has been dead these fifteen years, but no wild ducks have ever appeared on our homely board without recalling that observation. It is his memorable saying, his one good thing. Mr. Sidney was, as might be conjectured, an epicure. He was also an old bachelor, a clergyman, and senior fellow of a certain college, a post which he had long filled, being, although only a second son, so well provided for that he could afford to reject living after living in expectation of one favourite rectory to which he had taken an early fancy from the pleasantness of the situation and the imputed salubrity of the air. Of the latter quality, indeed, he used to give an instance which, however satisfactory as confirming his prepossession, could hardly have been quite agreeable as preventing him from gratifying it namely the extraordinary and provoking longevity of the incumbent, who at upwards of ninety gave no sign of decay, and bade fare to emulate the age of old pa. Whilst waiting for the expected living, Mr. Sidney, who disliked a college residence, built himself a very pretty house in our neighbourhood, which he called his home and where he lived, as much as a love of Bath and Brighton and London and Lords would let him. He counted many noble families amongst his near connections, and passed a good deal of his time at their country seats, a life for which he was by character and habit peculiarly fitted. 
In person he was a tall, stout, gentlemanly man, about fifty or by our lady inclining to threescore, with fine features, a composed gravity of countenance and demeanour, a bald head most accurately powdered, and a very graceful bow, quite the pattern of an elderly man of fashion. His conversation was in excellent keeping with the calm imperturbability of his countenance and the sedate gravity of his manner, smooth, dull, and commonplace, exceedingly safe, and somewhat imposing. He spoke so little that people really fell into the mistake of imagining that he thought, and the tone of decision with which he would advance some second-hand opinion was well calculated to confirm the mistake. Gravity was certainly his chief characteristic, and yet it was not a clerical gravity either. He had none of the generic marks of his profession. Although perfectly decorous in life and word and thought, no stranger ever took Mr. Sidney for a clergyman. He never did any duty anywhere that I ever heard of, except the agreeable duty of saying grace before dinner, and even that was often performed by some lay host in pure forgetfulness of his guest's ordination. Indeed, but for the direction of his letters, and an eye to the particular rectory, I am persuaded that the circumstance might have slipped out of his own recollection. His quality of old bachelor was more perceptible. There lurked, under all his polish, well covered but not concealed, the quiet selfishness, the little whims and precise habits, the primness and priggishness of that disconsolate condition. His man Andrews, for instance, valet, groom and body-servant abroad, butler, cook, caterer and major-domo at home, tall, portly, powdered and black-coated as his master, and like him in all things but the knowing pigtail which stuck out horizontally above his shirt-collar, giving a ludicrous dignity to his appearance. Andrews, who, constant as the dial pointed nine, carried up his chocolate and shaving water, and, regular as the chimes at midnight, prepared his white wine way, who never forgot his gouty shoe in travelling, once for two days he had a slight touch of that gentlemanly disorder, and never gave him the newspaper unaired. To whom could this jewel of a valet, this matchless piece of clockwork, belong but an old bachelor? and his little dog, Viper, unparagoned of terriers, black, sleek, sharp and shrewish, who would beg and sneeze and fetch and carry like a Christian, eat olives and sweetmeats and mustard, drink coffee and wine and liqueurs. Who but an old bachelor could have taught Viper his multifarious accomplishments? Little Viper was a most useful person in his way, for although Mr. Sidney was a very creditable acquaintance to meet on the King's Highway, your dull man, if he rides well, should never think of dismounting, or even on the level ground of a carpet in the crowd of a large party, yet when he happened to drop in to take a family dinner, a pretty frequent habit of his when in the country, then Viper's talents were inestimable in relieving the ennui occasioned by that grave piece of gentility, his master not only dull in himself, but the cause of dullness in others. Anything to pass away the heavy hours till Whist or Piquet relieved the female world from his intolerable silence. In other respects, these visits were sufficiently perplexing. 
every housewife can tell what a formidable guest is an epicure who comes to take pot luck how sure it is to be bad luck especially when the unfortunate hostess lives five miles from a market town mr sidney always came unseasonably on washing day or saturday or the day before a great party so sure as we had a scrap dinner so sure came he my dear mother who with true benevolence and hospitality cared much for her guest's comfort and nothing for her own pride used to grieve over his discomfiture and try all that could be done by potted meats and omelettes and little things tossed up on a sudden to amend the bill of fare but cookery is an obstinate art and will have its time however you may force the component parts there is no forcing a dinner mr sidney had the evil habit of arriving just as the last bell rang and in spite of all the hurry-scurry in the kitchen department the new niceties and the homely dishes were sure to disagree there was a total want of keeping the kickshaws were half raw the solids were mere rags the vegetables were cold the soup was scalding no shallots to the rump-steaks and no mushrooms with the broiled chicken no fish no oysters no ice and no pineapple poor mr sidney he must have had a great regard for us to put up with our bad dinners perhaps the chance of a rubber had something to do with his visits to our house if there be such a thing as a ruling passion the love of whist was his cards were not merely the amusement but the business of his life i do not mean as a money-making speculation for although he belonged to a fashionable club in london and to every card-meeting of decent gentility within reach of his country home he never went beyond a regular moderate stake and could not be induced to bet even by the rashest defier of calculation or the most provoking undervaluer of his play it always seemed to me that he regarded whist as far too important and scientific a pursuit to be degraded into an affair of gambling it had in his eyes all the dignity of a study an acquirement equally gentlemanly and clerical it was undoubtedly his test of ability he had the value of a man of family and a man of the world for rank and wealth and station and dignities of all sorts no human being entertained a higher respect for a king a prince a prime minister a duke a bishop or a lord but these were conventional feelings his genuine and unfeigned veneration was reserved for him who played a good rubber a praise he did not easily give he was a capital player himself and held all his country competitors except one in supreme and undisguised contempt which they endured to admiration i wonder they didn't send him to coventry he was the most disagreeable partner in the world and nearly as unpleasant an adversary for he not only enforced the pythagorean law of science which makes one hate whist so but used to distribute quite impartially to every one at table little disagreeable observations on every card they played it was not scolding or grumbling or fretting one has a sympathy with those expressions of feeling and at the worst can scold again 
It was a smooth, polite commentary on the errors of the party, delivered in the calm tone of undoubted superiority with which a great critic will sometimes take a small poet or a batch of poets to task in a review. How the people could bear it! But the world is a good-natured world, and doesn't like a man the less for treating it scornfully. So passed six evenings out of the seven with Mr. Sidney, for it was pretty well known that on the rare occurrence of his spending a day at home without company, his factotum Andrews used to have the honour of being beaten by his master in a snug game at Double Dumby. But what he did with himself on Sunday occasioned me some speculation. Never in my life did I see him take up a book, although he sometimes talked of Shakespeare and Milton and Johnson and Burke, in a manner which proved that he had heard of such things. And as to the newspaper, which he did read, that was generally conned over long before night. Besides, he never exhibited spectacles, and I have a notion that he could not read newspaper type at night without them. How he could possibly get through the after-coffee hours on a Sunday puzzled me long. And chance solved the problem. He came to call on us after church, and agreed to dine and sleep at our house. The moment tea was over, without the slightest apology or attempt at conversation, he drew his chair to the fire, set his feet on the fender, and fell fast asleep in the most comfortable and orderly manner possible. It was evidently a weekly habit. Every sense and limb seemed composed to it. Viper looked up in his face, curled himself round on the hearthrug, and went to sleep too. And Andrews, just as the clock struck twelve, came in to wake him that he might go to bed. It was clearly an invariable custom, a settled thing. His house and grounds were kept in the neatest manner possible. There was something even disagreeable in the excessive nicety, the Dutch preciseness of the shining gravel walks, the smooth shaven turf of the lawn, and the fine sifted mould of the shrubberies. A few dead leaves or scattered flowers, even a weed or two, anything to take away from the artificial toy-like look of the place would have been an improvement. Mr. Sidney, however, did not think so. He actually caused his gardener to remove those littering plants called roses and gum cistuses. Other flowers fared little better. No sooner were they in bloom than he pulled them up for fear they should drop. Indoors matters were still worse. The rooms and furniture were very handsome, abounding in the luxurious turkey carpets, the sofas, easy chairs and ottomans which his habits required and yet I never in my life saw any house which looked less comfortable. Everything was so constantly in its place, so provokingly in order, so full of naked nicety, and so thoroughly old bachelorish. No work, no books, no music, no flowers. But for those two things of life, viper and a sparkling fire, one might have thought the place uninhabited. Once a year, indeed, it gave signs of animation in the shape of a Christmas party. That was Mr. Sidney's shining time. Nothing could exceed the smiling hospitality of the host or the lavish profusion of the entertainment. It breathed the very spirit of a welcome splendidly liberal, 
and little Viper frisked and bounded, and Andrew's tail vibrated, I was going to say wagged, with cordiality and pleasure. Andrew's, on these occasions, laid aside his customary black in favour of a blue coat and a white silk court waistcoat, with a light running pattern of embroidery and silver spangles, assumed to do honour to his master and the company. How much he enjoyed the applause which the wines and the cookery elicited from the gentlemen, and how anxiously he would direct the ladies' attention to a manuscript collection of riddles, the compilation of some deceased countess, laid on the drawing-room table for their amusement between dinner and tea. Once, I remember, he carried his attention so far as to produce a gone-by toy called a bandolore for the recreation of myself and another little girl, admitted by virtue of the Christmas holidays to this annual festival. Poor Andrews! I am convinced that he considered the entertainment of the visitors quite as much his affair as his master's, and certainly they both succeeded. Never did parties pass more pleasantly. On those evenings, Mr. Sidney even forgot to find fault at whist. At last, towards the end of a severe winter, during which he had suffered much from repeated colds, that certain rectory became vacant, and our worthy neighbour hastened to take possession. The day before his journey he called on us in the highest spirits, anticipating a renewal of health and youth in this favourite spot, and approaching nearer than I had ever heard him to a jest on the subject of looking for a wife. Married or single, he made us promise to visit him during the ensuing summer. <sighs> Alas, long before the summer arrived, our poor friend was dead. He had waited for this living thirty years. He did not enjoy it thirty days. End of chapter 13